Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I'm the host of this program. A while back, we received a letter from one of our listeners. In the letter, she described how she was curious about a specific Bible verse. And wanted us to share the meaning of it. It was based on the scripture of Matthew chapter 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In her letter, she asked, God has asked us to first seek his kingdom and his righteousness, but how do I seek for his kingdom and his righteousness if I do not know what they are? She wanted to know the meaning of these two concepts. Truthfully, this is a scripture that we hear often, and I think because it is such a well known scripture, a lot of people might not put a great deal of thought into the actual meaning of it. After receiving and reading this letter from our listener, I took some time to think and pray more about this verse. During our broadcast today, I would like to take this time to share with everyone about his kingdom that is set in the scripture of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. We'll come back to share more after our first song. I believe in the sun. I believe in the risen one. I believe I overcome. By the power of his blood. Amen. Amen. I'm alive, I'm alive because he lives. Amen. Amen. Let my song join the world that never ends because he lives. Covered in sin and shame, I heard mercy call my name. He rolled the sun away. Amen. Amen. I'm alive, I'm alive because he lives.
First, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the very scripture of Matthew chapter six, verse thirty-three. Basileia is a word from the ancient Greek language used to express kingdom in his kingdom. This word is not to describe a geographical country such as Korea or America, but instead means royal power, kingship, dominion, or rule. Therefore, meaning the kingdom of God is a place in which God's power or reign is fulfilled. God first created the universe and mankind. It was God's perfect kingdom and in His reign. But because of the disobedience of Adam, sin came into the world and it was broken apart. Of course, this does not mean that God lost His sovereign power or the power of His reign decreased. It means that the result of a man's sinning led to the separation of God's reign, which broke the relationship that man had with God, and created instead a desire to be one's own master. In truth, as God said, all people lost eternal life and were led into the power of death. Ephesians chapter two verse two says, "In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world." According to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, separated from the reign of God, we began following the ways of Satan, who holds the power of the air. We became slaves to sin, though we wanted to live under God's reign. We could not, or would not do it. This was because sin broke apart the relationship between God and the people. And because God is a just God, He therefore had to bring judgment for all sinners. However, there became a way for people to live under God's sovereign reign again. What was that way? Jesus Christ. God called His Son to die on the cross to pay the price of our debts to sin. The atonement of Jesus Christ opened up a way for sinners who were living under the power of sin to come back and live under God's reign. This is why Jesus proclaimed these words at the start of his ministry. For that time, Jesus began to preach and say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." These are the words of Matthew chapter four, verse seventeen. Jesus preached that God's kingdom was soon to come, and he proclaimed that if we repent our sins, it was our way to enter into God's kingdom. In our hearts, Lord, in this name. 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Justified by Faith, Part 1, based on the scriptures of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Keller. Now, every single week, we are looking at the story arc of the whole Bible. We're understanding that the Bible is not so much a set of disconnected stories, each with a little lesson on how to live your life, but the Bible actually comprises a single story that tells us what's wrong with the human race and the world, what God has done to put it right in Jesus Christ, and then, as a result, how history is going to turn out in the end. And we're looking at Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, because here we have... Paul summarizing the story of the Bible. And here in chapter 3, the last half of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, we probably have the Paul's most best, most essential summary of what he thinks the Bible's all about and what this salvation is that God has done to put the world right. And there's three phrases that are, that actually are in a sense repeated and they're brought into relationships with each other in different ways throughout these few verses. But those three phrases are, we are justified freely by faith through the blood of Christ. Free justification, all by faith, because of through the blood of Jesus. And for three weeks, we're actually going to look at essentially these same verses, chapter 3 in the beginning of chapter 4, for three weeks to look at each of those phrases. And during these, and the reason why, is because actually, as you know, if you've ever been here before, we actually talk about these three things every week. But what I want to do for three weeks is I want to be as clear and as practical as about what these things are and how you have to relate to these three things. I'm concerned to be practical and clear more than inspirational. So what we're going to look at tonight is the first of these three ideas, free justification. What is that? Why do we need it? What is it? And how do we receive it? Now, why we need it? The very famous beginning of this passage, but now... A righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Let me show you how absolutely radical that is. This word righteousness, I know, does not compute much. It doesn't connect to us uh, English speakers. It's almost a negative word in our language. So, But let me explain how it functions, what we're really talking about here. Righteousness is a validating performance record which open doors. So, for example, you want a job? You get out a resume. That resume is your vocational record. It should have all your accomplishments and experiences. And if you want a job, you take it to the employer or whoever you have to apply to, and it's your validating performance record. And you say, this means I'm worthy of this position, accept me. And if your performance record is good enough, if you're good enough, the door opens. Or let's say you want a, to get a, a, an advanced degree and uh, you want to get into a degree program, what do you do? Well, in that case, you bring out not your vocational record, you bring out your academic record, you bring out your, your grades. And these now function as a validating performance record. And you say, look at this, because of these grades, I am worthy of this position, accept me. Please accept me. And if you're good enough, you're accepted. And because that's the way it is in all of life. Everybody has these performance records, these validating performance records by which I get jobs, by which I get into school, by which I you know, do all these various things. That's the reason why every religion and every culture everywhere in the world believes it's the same with God. 
that if you're going to have a if there is a God and you're going to have a spiritual connection, it's the same. It's not a vocational record or a an academic record. It's a moral record. But this is how you get connected to God. This is how you go to heaven. This is how you find enlightenment or whatever. Here's how you connect to the divine. You get out your performance record. You develop a righteousness and you offer it. And if you're good enough, you're worthy and you're accepted. And then Paul comes along and says, but now, for the first time in history, and by the way, may I add the last time in history, an absolutely unheard of spirituality, an absolutely totally unheard of approach to God has been revealed. What? He says there's not just a good record or a great record, but a divine righteousness, a perfect record, and it is available as a gift. It comes to us. It's, it, it, it lights upon us. And when we have it, it's the end of our struggle for validation, for worthy, for worth, and for acceptability. We don't know anything. Apart from the Christian gospel, there is nobody else, no other place that offers anything like that. Because all anyone else knows is a righteousness that we develop and then we offer to God. Or we offer to the powers that be and say, now accept me. But the gospel is that God develops a perfect righteousness and he offers it to us. And by it, we're accepted. Paul says, but now means that's never been ever heard of before and it never has been heard of since. The Christian gospel is absolutely and utterly and totally unique. And the reverse of what anybody else, any other religion, any other culture, any, any other philosophy, and any human heart actually believes. What else somebody says, I'm going to try to be as clear and as practical as I can be. If you're a thoughtful person, you may be out there saying, yeah, but I'm not a religious person. I'm not into righteousness and moral records. I'm a secular person, or I'm not sure what I believe about God. And so uh, that, this is nice for you religious people, but this has nothing to say to me. No, I beg to differ with you. Because properly understood, everybody is seeking righteousness. Now, here's the way to understand that. Is the word righteousness and the word justification in this text are actually the same Greek word. Uh, you know, in English, righteousness and to be justified is one thing, to be righteous is a very another thing, but it's actually the same concept. So let's look at that term. Let me show you that everybody is trying to find a way to be justified. In the Chariots of Fire, there's uh, one of the characters, he's a, he's a runner, he's an athlete, he's an Olympic runner, and he's going for the gold in the 100-yard dash, if remember, it was that. And when somebody says, why are you working so hard, you know, to, why are you training so hard, he actually says, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Here's what he's saying. He says, you know, I want to know that I am justified being here. I want to know that... My life is worth something. I want to know that, what I'm, what I'm, that my life counts. I want to know that I'm a person worthy to be known and accepted. And the way I'm doing that, the way, the way I'm convincing myself and other people that my existence is justified, is I'm going to be a runner. And that means that, and of course, as you know how the movie goes, the cheering of the crown and the gold medal he wins is his justification. It's not just a gold medal. It's not just cheering. It's his justification. It makes him feel validated, worthy, accepted. Sidney Pollack was a, uh, uh, just died a couple years ago, and he was a movie maker. But I found that uh, a, a newspaper article about him not too long before he died. And uh, it said that he, though he was getting obviously old and he was sick and dying, he couldn't stop working. Even when his family said, please stop working, you're shortening your life, we want more time with you, he couldn't stop working. And here's why. And this is from the newspaper article. Movie mogul, 
Sidney Pollack says that although the grueling film-making process is wearing him down, he can't justify his existence if he stops. He explained, quote, every time I finish a picture, I feel I've earned my stay for another year or so. What's he saying? It's the same thing as the, the runner in Chariots of Fire. He says, you know, everybody needs to feel that, that they're doing something that justifies their being here. I feel I need to earn my stay. I feel I need to, need to say, here's why my life counts. Here's why my life is worthwhile. Here's how I get a sense of validity and, and acceptability. I make movies. And notice he says, and I have to keep doing it because I make a movie and for a while I feel I've earned my stay and then I've got to go back and do another to keep up that sense of justification, which means movie making isn't enough, actually. And then he died. I was reading an article by a, a writer, a guy who felt his writing career was just not going anywhere. He wanted to be a writer. He wanted to make a difference, and nobody was buying his stuff. And he said, occasionally I start to wonder, what am I really here for? What am I really living for? And then he said in the article, but then when I look at my two little daughters, my two little girls, then I know that my existence is justified. They justify my existence. Now, that, you know, you know, I don't know the guy, and I don't know. It could have been hyperbole, and it might just be a way of saying, I just love my daughters. But I also know that there are parents, quite a lot of parents, that look at their children and say, you know, there's really nothing else I do in life that really justifies my being here, that makes me feel like a worthwhile person, that makes me feel like my life is worthwhile and acceptable and valid. But the fact is, I'm a father, I'm a mother, my children are happy, my children are successful, I'm living for them. Well, I want you to know that if your children are the justification of your existence, if that's how you justify your being here, you're going to destroy them. Parents who do this never believe, and therefore, I don't even try to tell them, but their passion for their children's happiness and success is utterly selfish. It's not about the kids, it's about them. It's their justification. It's their righteousness. It's their validating performance record. If I'm a good parent and my kids are happy and successful, then I have... But you know what? If anything goes wrong with them, and God, something will. You will melt down and not be in a position to help them. You won't really be the parent you really always thought you were. So you understand everybody's struggling for righteousness. Everybody's struggling to justify their existence. Everybody is, is wrestling and struggling for righteousness and validation and worth and acceptability. And I, some of you are saying, okay, I see your point, but actually these people you just gave me, do these, what, what these people really need is not righteousness. They need counseling. You know, they need a good therapist. You know, they're just, they're making too much of their children and too much of their writing, too much of their, of their movie making. They need counseling. It's really a psychological problem. And I beg to differ again. No, it's a psychological manifestation of a, an underlying condition. There's a man who lives near the York Railway Station in Northern England, and he's a secular man, and he wrote an article about an interesting, uh, some thoughts he had about this. He's a secular man, he's not a religious man, but every day he has to go by a billboard at the York Railway Station, and somebody evidently put up a sign, and on it is a Bible verse, Romans 14, 12. And every day he has to go by this Bible verse that says, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And he writes, irrespective of whether you are religious or not, the longer you live, the idea of being able to justify your existence crops up more and more. And he goes on to say, you know, I'm not a religious person. When I go by that, I realize the older I get that I really need to justify why I'm even here. He goes on and he says, some of his secular friends and his religious friends say, that's ridiculous. Why do you need to justify your existence? Why do you need to prove to, you, to somebody else that you are worthy of being here? 
you, you are who you are and you live the way you live and who cares what anybody else thinks? And he says, you know, people who actually believe that, that they don't care what anybody else thinks, they don't need to justify themselves, they don't need to prove themselves, those are sociopaths. Those are people who eventually are capable of very bad things. He says every single person, whether you're religious or not, really begins to know you need to justify your even being here. But he says the problem comes that if you start to say, okay, what, what does justify my being here? I'm living the kind of life I think people should live. I'm the person that I think I should be. I'm the kind of person I think other people should be. And I'm not. He actually says, here's the problem with justifying my existence. It's very hard. Not because I'm a really bad person, but because I could be, I know I should be, far better than I am. And he's experiencing, in Romans chapter 2, we're told that every single person, whether they believe in God or not, does understand that they have, they've got a conscience and they do know that they ought to be living in a certain way. And that justifies their being here. And if you remember, Romans 2 says that God is actually going to judge people by what they know in their conscience. And the illustration that somebody, some other minister once gave was the little recorder, the little invisible tape recorder around the neck that only picks up the things you say to other people about how they should live. And that on Judgment Day... This minister once said, Romans 2 is saying that God will take that invisible tape recorder off. He'll put it in front of you. And he says, you know, I'm going to be very fair. I'm not going to judge you by the Ten Commandments if you didn't believe in it. I'm not going to judge you by the Bible if you've never read it. I'm going to judge you by what you say your own standards are for people. Let's see how you do. Play. And nobody will be able to stand on that judgment day. Because nobody can justify their existence even by their own standards. And this guy know it on the way to the York Railway Station. He said, I'm not even, said, I'm not even religious. And I realize that as time goes on, everybody's struggling for righteousness and nobody is getting there. You know why? Because Sidney Pollack kept knowing he had to keep doing movies. And one gold medal's never enough. And John D. Rockefeller said, one more million dollars and then I'll feel I'm okay. So that's why we need it. And Paul says... There is a solution. It is possible through the gospel to end your struggle for righteousness, validation, worth, and acceptability. What is it? It's free justification. Now, what is free justification? Let's break this down. Free justification. I'll put it this way. Justified freely. It's in verse 24. And I'd like to show you that the gospel is talking about something that I have to say people can be around church or in church for years and years and not even understand. It's almost like free justification is a piece of furniture in the living room that's the main piece. And people know a lot of things. Could you imagine coming into a big grand ballroom and we're going to have this incredible feast and there's chairs, shelves, and there's all the other pieces of furniture and there's a rug, but there's no table. And what I'm about to tell you is the table. If you want to understand free justification, you have to understand that on the one hand... It is far more than forgiveness and pardon. But on the other hand, it is distinctly different than moral goodness. It's more than pardon, and it's distinct from being morally a good person. It's neither of those things. First, it's more than pardon. When most people hear, oh, you're justified by grace because of Jesus' death on the cross, right away they say, oh, we're forgiven. And that's true. But that's not what justification is. It's more, infinitely more. Forgiveness is basically a negative. It means you're now free from liability to punishment. But justification is a positive. It's the bestowal of a status with all the rights and privileges and benefits pertaining thereunto. So as one person once said, Marcus Lone, years ago, 
To speak of, of forgiveness is to say, you may go, you have been let off of your penalty. But to speak of justification is to say, you may come. You are welcome into all my love and my presence.
You're now with Unity in Christ, powered by Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to hear from you. If you have any comments or testimony that you want to share with us, please email it to askhsgm at gmail.com. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following is a program titled, The Lord is My Shepherd, where we learn about our Lord who is our shepherd through Psalm chapter 23. Hello and welcome back. This is Jim Hughes with The Lord is My Shepherd. God, our Good Shepherd, leads us to the paths of righteousness for his own glorious name. Did you have a week of walking in the way of righteousness through his guidance? Today I'd like to read and think about the beginning of Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Have you heard this joke? A Sunday school teacher asked a question to the children. Guys, do you know how to get to heaven? The teacher here is probably expecting an answer such as, we get there by having faith and believing in Jesus Christ. But one child gave an unexpected answer. The child said, we have to die to get there. The answer might sound funny, but it's actually true when we think about it. In order to go to heaven, we must die. We can think of a couple of meanings implied by this answer along with the meaning that we literally and physically have to die, unless Jesus returns and calls us away first, we have to die to get to heaven. But wouldn't it carry a spiritual meaning also, that we get there once ourselves are crucified on the cross with Jesus Christ? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is the meaning of denying himself and taking up his cross? This verse is speaking about death to self. That is why Jesus says in the next verse, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. David, the author of Psalm 23, makes a special confession in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. What truth is David meaning to convey with this declaration? 
There was a seasonal use of the ranches in the area around Palestine where David lived. It is said that most of the competent shepherds would leave to take a long journey with their sheep in early summer when the days began to warm up. Since the sheep would eat most of the grass around the local ranches during the winter and spring, the ground required time to recover and grow new grass during summer and fall. In the meantime, the shepherds let the sheep eat the fresh grass along the way on their journey to the top of a mountain. As soon as fall approached and the first snow fell on the high top of the mountain, the shepherd would then lead the sheep back to the ranch. Can you imagine the shepherd living among his sheep on these long summer journeys? When the shepherd raises sheep at the ranch, he sleeps at home. But when he takes the sheep to a meadow at the top of the mountain, the shepherd and the sheep are constantly together. For this reason, in Psalm 23, verses 4 and 5, David addresses God with an intimate expression by using the word you. Instead of referring to God as God or he, just as David did in verses 1 through 3, here he says you. You are with me. David used this expression because he was reflecting on this most intimate time between the shepherd and the sheep. There are several paths available to take to the top of the mountain, but the shepherd chooses the gentlest path. He avoids steep slopes or cliffs in the mountain because of the risk of losing sheep along the way. The gentle path is always through the valley. This is the first reason that the shepherd leads the sheep to go through the valley. That path is the safest way up the mountain. However, the safest way does not mean that there is no danger. It only means that it is less dangerous than the other ways. The valleys always present some risks, such as wildly overflowing rivers, avalanches, falling rocks, beasts that can suddenly appear and attack, and many more. Also, the deep valley is always covered with a dark shadow because the high hills on each side screen the sun even in the daytime. So going through the valley means that they are always exposed to the shadow of death. But the shepherd chooses this path because it is less dangerous than the other steep paths with cliffs. There is another reason the shepherd leads the sheep through the valley. There is fresh water in several places in the valley, and it has very good pasture near the fresh water. They can reach the top of the mountain quickly if they go by way of the sloping and uphill roads but there is no water or grass. And it is dangerous because most of them may die from falling. Following the valley leads them to an abundant source of water and grass, and all the sheep can be expected to reach the top, even though it takes more time. But as I've said, the valley is exposed to the shadow of death due to various hazards. So the most important purpose of the Good Shepherd is to lead the sheep well so they safely escape from the valley of the shadow of death. David 
is confessing that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid because God, our good shepherd, leads me and will be with me. A lot of people become anxious when they are near the valley of the shadow of death in their lives. They are trapped in the fear that they may die. But there's one thing they are forgetting. It is that the shepherds do not lead the sheep to the valley of the shadow of death to kill them. They are doing so in order to lead them to the green pastures on the top of the mountain. The purpose of the shepherd is not to kill the sheep. It is to save the sheep. When we are covered with the shadow of death in our lives and have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we should remember God who led me here will not lead me to death, but will lead me to where he is. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Earlier we considered the statement, in order to get to heaven we must die. Christians can be glad rather than sad in the face of their own death. This is because once we go through the valley of death, we know that we will meet our loving God, whom we have been waiting to see. If God, who knows all things, leads us to the valley of the shadow of death, it is because it is the best way to get to God. God will never let us go through that valley alone. That path was taken by Jesus before us, and now the Holy Spirit will go with us. We will be able to make the same confession David made, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Christian, are you walking through a dark valley now? The Lord, your shepherd, is walking through the valley with you. You are not alone. Do not be afraid. The Lord Jesus is with you. Join us again next time as we continue with The Lord is My Shepherd.
To seek the kingdom of God is the equivalent of seeking for His reign. It is very important to know under whose power and reign I am living under. If I am living under God's authority and by His guidance, then I will become a citizen of His kingdom. However, if I am living under Satan's ruling, then I will become a citizen of hell. We need to remember the reason sin came into us. It was because we wanted to stray away from God's authority. Our eyes became blinded, and we had the selfishness in us to want to become like God and to be the master of our own self. To become a follower of Christ means that I admit to the fact that I am no longer my own master. If I proclaim that I am a Christian, but I still act as my own master, following the ways of my own thoughts and words. It would signify that I am still under the power of the air. The words that Jesus spoke before he said to first seek his kingdom and his righteousness were about the foreigners. These are not the foreigners that live in a foreign country, but the people who refuse to live within the reign of God, people who live outside of God's authority. Those people continue to live for themselves and live by seeking for what they will eat and wear. However, Jesus tells us that we must seek for our Master's kingdom and for His authority. This is why we must seek first His kingdom. I hope to speak to everyone next week about God's righteousness. I pray that all of our listeners may live this next week in the complete reign of God within our lives. We will now wrap up unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless.